we're the experts. We're coming in to clean up the problem. And if we're not, if we don't have the confidence to have that conversation, then we're, we're not living out our promise. Welcome to 33 Tangents, a weekly podcast featuring a rotating panel of co-hosts that all work together in the same company, but live in different areas of the world. The discussions cover a wide variety of topics from digital analytics to working remotely to current happenings in business and technology. Our regular day-to-day conversations often go off in various directions, and the goal of this podcast is to share our ideas and find new ways to engage with others. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? We're back from our first attempted live stream. No, it, we, it went down. Yeah, I mean, we ran into some issues. There were some learnings <laughs> along the way, but you never get those learnings if you don't try something different, right? That's right. That's right. And, and we knew going into it, it was going to be uh, something new, and we'd figure we'd find some kinks, and it was fun, and it created an amazing. Uh, little video at the end with Jim wandering around the house trying to get a better Wi-Fi signal. So there you go. Yep. But yeah, uh, yeah I'll make sure I'm hardwired next time. Um, you know, it's also between us trying to live stream record and then my wife teaching from home right mm. now. You know, it's like the, the, the band that's a lot. definitely yeah. suffered. Yeah. That's a lot to ask. So, but I think it was fun. We had some, we had a few guests, had some good interaction. Yeah. And, you know, we'll we'll see what we could do. I'd like to maybe do it once a month where we record the episode live. Do it live. Yeah. I thought it was fun. I mean, if we can get a big enough audience, I I really like the participation aspect of it, Um, but definitely need a a big enough audience for it to, to make sense. So be cool if we can get it to go for sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. So what's going on? What's new? It's uh, Wednesday already. The day we're it recording is. this. Um, so it's crazy. I, I don't know about you, but we're in this uh, we're in this weird transition period that happens every year, where in the morning you have to crank the heat, and I have a little space heater. Let's see it here, here. Yeah, a little space yep. heater uh in the office because it's freezing in the morning but then by the afternoon i'll have the windows wide open because it's too hot so yeah we're, we're getting to that point too um and i got the space heater going today um but i think um you know by by this afternoon it's supposed to be like almost 60 degrees yeah. so yeah i'll be turning that off and we're a couple weeks away from being able to actually open up the windows in the house yeah That'll be nice. Yeah, yesterday I was 52 yeah. here, and it was just nice outside in a t-shirt, and felt felt good. So I'm ready for spring. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you. Oh, I am too. Um, I'm starting to get the stuff together to set up uh, the yard outside. Yeah, outside and do some work from outside, and just yeah. You worked outside. on your uh, your patio setup last year a bit. Yep, I'm gonna do some more work to that this year. Um, went to Target. Target had these really cool Adirondack chairs on sale. Mm. So I went and picked up a couple of those over the weekend. So I'll put them on the side of the house and get the fire pit all set up. And, nice. And then for, for Father's Day last year, my wife got me 
one of those little mini projectors. Oh, and yeah. so like I, I, I foresee like, you know, just um, going outside in the evening, popping that on and, you know, putting a baseball game on or something, just kind of yeah. hanging outside with the fire pit. Going. So, so what do you do? Like put up a white sheet or like, ooh. I actually got the portable screen oh, so okay. that I'll anchor yes. into the ground and then project onto that. Okay. Now, I mean, like, is it, like cinema quality projection no but that's the fun of it it's a little mini yeah. portable projector that yeah. i could take outside you know try to take the apple tv outside and project uh through that i've done it through my phone and my laptop too awesome yeah i'm looking forward to some outside time so that will be super fun mm-hmm. so i saw you tweet something last night that i wanted to open up with okay um you tweeted that for the first time you've assumed the role of the wolf. And we, we talked about that a year ago on an episode, what that means. I'll, I'll post a link to that episode. So I was just curious what you could share as far as what you meant by that what uh, and what went down. Uh, I don't think anything specific went down. Um, it, it has definitely been in the making for, for a long time. Um, you and I talked about this analogy from... Um, uh, atomic habits that I really, really like with mm-hmm. this concept of setting an ice cube on a counter. And like, y- it's going through increments of going from like zero degrees to five degrees and you don't see anything happening. And then all of a sudden it goes from 31, 32, 33. And then all of a sudden you see all this action. You think, Oh, it's those last couple of degrees that made it melt. It's like, no, is this all of these things that led up to it? And I think not only the last eight years of building 33.6, but just from a career perspective, so many things have been adding to it. And we've talked a lot about the concept of the wolf. And and for, for those listeners that may not have heard previous episodes where we've talked about it, it's been a concept that we've used internally. And it's it's it comes specifically from the scene in, in Pulp, Pulp Fiction where Winston Wolf shows up to help clean up the headless body in the car and the blood. And, the, and, and, he, and he takes this approach of, I'm here to help. Like, this is what I do. I'm going to clean this up. We're going to get get this taken care of. I'm, I'm here to help. You guys need to listen to me. And if my help is not appreciated, best of luck. And um, the best of luck is something that we've we've kind of branded internally because it's it's how I've ended emails um, where it's clear that a relationship is not in alignment. Um, it's something that we've really prided ourselves on. Not not the fact that we can fire clients, which we've rarely, rarely done, but that we can be selective in the clients that we work with. And that's something that we very much pride ourselves on that we just, we don't work with everybody. And it's, it's okay to do that. If that's your business model that, you know, whatever comes in the door, you're going to provide services to them. That's awesome. That's not what we do. Um, We know that we, we, it, in order for us to deliver the value and create, I think the most important part, create the the personal relationships and experiences that we want to create for people, we have to hand select the companies that we work with in order to do that. And part of that selection process up front is, you know, understanding, are are we going to look at this as a a true partnership between the two of us? And um, do you want our help? If, you know, if, if, and do you appreciate our help? And that's the, I think for us, the most important thing. And if you don't, that's fine. Best of luck you know, we're, we're out. And I've sent that email several times to several very large companies that, you know, wanted to beat us up that said, well, you know, your, your, your pricing is too high. What you do isn't worth that much. You know, I can go get this done cheaper somewhere else and someone else. And I'm like, great, go do it. Best of luck. And, you know, I flat out have told companies that I've like, that's how you see us. If our help is not appreciated, 
best of luck. Um, but it's been hard to fully embrace that role. And, um, I, and I think for me, just because I have such a sense of, I don't even know what I'm doing. You know, we've talked about this, this concept of what's the, what's the buzzword around it. Um, where we don't think we're, we're imposter syndrome. Yeah. Imposter syndrome. Um, we have imposter syndrome, I think as a company and as individuals, like we're constantly saying, ah, I mean, we're good, but we're just not that good. You know, we're not, you know, other people are way smarter than us and I don't even know how we got here. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's something that I personally suffer from a lot that I'm constantly questioning, like, who, who am I to like stand up to these companies or say, I know what I'm doing. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and so I think that has played a big part of, in, of it. Um, and unfortunately, and especially in the early years of running the company, what that meant was I would often just kind of be the timid puppy dog that kind of, you know, cowers down and rolls over on, on their back and, and says, okay, you know, whatever you guys want. And so typically I allow myself to be beat up on terms of agreements with companies, always getting beat up on price, which was sad because I was always undercutting our price. I was, I, I was going in with a low, low price because I was scared to ask for what I knew we were worth, but I'm like, no company's going to know, see that we're worth that much. So I'm not even going to ask for it. And so it was super depressing to know that I was going in asking for a lower fee than I should, and then still getting beat up on that price. That was really hard to swallow, but it, it happened for years and years and years. And every, every, you know, over the last maybe two or three years, I've started to change my mentality and something the last, this was recent, maybe the last one or two months, I came to this place. I'm like, what the hell am I doing? Like, I'm the one that's put in all the risk to build this company. I'm the one that spent all of my personal savings to get this going. Like, I, we started this company in order to do the work that we wanted to do. Why am I letting someone else dictate that? That makes no sense to me. And it wasn't one specific event. It wasn't even one specific thing, it was just all of a sudden something clicked. It's like, wait a minute, I'm not going to do that anymore. And I, and, and that fear of asking for what I want went away. And so it's been really empowering and it's been, it felt has been feeling really, really good to go into conversations. And again, not to do it in like a conceited or a cocky way or to be a jerk or to like flex. It's, it's a, this is what we do. This is who we are. This is the value that we provide. And in order to do that, this is the price that we pay. That's it. And and feel comfortable saying that feels amazing. What's been some of the responses you've gotten? Overall, like no different. Like <laughs> there's been no pushback. <laughs> uh, it's been, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, you know, that's, that sounds good. Like let's, let's move forward on it. Because I think the type of companies that we attract, they know that they're getting that the value. In fact, I've talked with a lot of our clients and they say things like, I kind of pinch myself that we're paying you guys X. Like, I, <laughs> it's like, I feel like we're getting such an amazing deal and I know it. Um, I'm like, you, yeah, you are. Um, but um, there have been a few that have been, have been, have pushed back on it and, and still kind of said, you know, I don't see the value. And I'm like, okay, I completely understand that. We, we, we can be done talking now. I'm not here to convince you. I'm not here to give you a, a wine and dine sales pitch. Maybe that makes me a bad salesperson and I should probably invest a little more in understanding where they're coming from. But I'm at the point where if they say, look, there's no way that that, that costs that much and it's worth that much to us. Um, it's really easy for me to say, 
well, then we can be done talking. We can save ourselves both a lot of time. There's nothing more to talk about. So, and, and again, I, 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 I feel a little bit uncomfortable saying that because I don't want it to come across as cocky or conceited, but it, it feels amazing to know that we are creating value and I know there's value in it. In fact, I was on a phone call just yesterday with one of our clients helping, helping them design um, an A-B testing strategy for a massive change they're making to their business. Um, and I reviewed what they had put in place. I saw some, some real deficits in their plan that could have been catastrophic catastrophic for them how they move forward with it and i said whoa let's take a step back and rethink through how we want to do this because we need to think about a b and c it was an hour phone call and i walked away from that call and i thought that one phone call was worth more than the entire monthly bill that we're going to send them so that was the click and um to me it feels good and we'll see where it goes from here. But for me personally, it feels good finally to get there to say, we've put in the work to build this. We we should be able to be the wolf and say, I'm here to help. We have the expertise. If our help's not appreciated, best of luck. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's really cool. You know, that that is, I, I bet you that, that I, I bet that feels, you know, good to be in a position like that where you, you know the value. And you're able to, to, to push back on, on people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, personally, it feels good. And I think it probably feels good to the market and clients. I think about, think about anything that you've bought and you've talked to someone and they feel timid and meek and they don't come across as confident. Does it make you feel good about what you're buying? Oftentimes for me, it doesn't. Um, there's a, um, there's an Italian market that Ben Gaines and I go to quite often up in Salt Lake. And I was joking to him the other day. I'm like, I would pay a membership just to go in there and listen to these guys talk (laughs) because they know their products so well. It's just so entertaining to listen to them talk. But it's, again, it's kind of borderline on that. This confidence is almost cocky. How, how much knowledge they have about, you know, and for us, we're going in and looking at like olives and, and cured meats and things like that. And just the depth of knowledge these these guys at this deli have is just phenomenal. And I go in there, I'm like, I want to buy stuff from you guys because of like this confidence you have in what you're selling, you know, and then compare that to going to like a big box grocery store or your deli counter and saying, well, can you tell me about this prosciutto over here, how it differs from that one? It's like, well, this one's $11 and that one's 15. Uh-uh, uh-huh, uh-huh, Yeah. I'm kind of looking for some more information than that. And you're not as confident. It's like, these guys don't know. They're just there to like, you know, sell you something that's on the shelf. They're not there to help educate you. And they're not confident in their knowledge of, of what they're, they're doing. So anyway, yeah. uh, I, I have a friend. You said, I have a friend. <laughs> uh, I, I have a friend who used to work for a car dealership. He was a car salesman. And he was like, anytime that you're looking to go buy a car, go ask your salesman what kind of car they drive. If Mm -hmm. they're not driving the brand that, you know, the, the brand that they're selling, um, it's just a job. They, they don't necessarily believe in the brand. Um, they, you know, or whatever they, they don't believe in the brand enough to, 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 to buy and use the brand that, that they're selling. Uh, yeah, I love that. In fact, it reminds me, and this goes back to the previous company 
excuse me, that I worked for before starting 33 Sticks is I created kind of an ethos of what we believed in. And I stole a lot of it from the cowboy code, kind of the law of the West. And one of, one of those code, one of those codes was you ride for the brand. And that's something that I've always tried to instill. And it's, it's one thing to like force your employees to do it. Um, I think a lot of people can see through that, you know, have you seen this, um, this scenario where you, you have folks that maybe not, um, so active on social media, all of a I sudden, know exactly where you're going. You know where I'm going? Like <laughs> yep, the boss comes in and says, okay, you know, we've got this article published about us in xyz.com. Here's the, here's the text. Everybody go share this on LinkedIn, put it on your Facebook, tweet about it. And all of a sudden you get all these people spamming social networks that rarely post all posting the same message. It's inauthentic writing. That's not writing for the brand, right? Like people can see through that. But to your point about the car dealership, um, I don't know of any car dealership that I've went to that someone's that passionate about it. That it's just a job for them, right? But if it was, you know what? I take that back. The guy I bought my Jeep from um, has owned Jeeps for 30 years. And when I talked to him, he had like all these stories and the ins and outs of Jeeps and how he used his Jeep. Like I could tell this wasn't just a job for him. He loved Jeeps and he drove a Jeep and I could tell by the way he talked. But, but most people, it's, it's not, it's not that it's just a job, right? And even if they're quote driving the company car, they're not riding from the brand because they're just doing it because the boss asked them to, they're not doing it because they have passion for the brand. So they're willing to, to write for the brand and put that logo on their back. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and I thought it was a good thing. Like, you know, have I ever done it? No, like going in and, you know, when it was time to get a new car, you know, kind of, it's, it's kind of a dick move, you know, what, what kind of car do you drive? But it's good perspective to think of that, um, that, that if you want to work with someone who genuinely enjoys the brand that you're looking to buy, because all I could think of was that story um, yeah. when, you know, with, with a few things you, you said earlier about having genuine passion for the industry, the product, um, knowing all the ins and outs of the product yeah. and really caring about the experience. Yeah, for, for sure. And again, I think, I think buyers aren't stupid. Um, maybe oftentimes marketing and sales teams think they're stupid, but they're, they're, they may not be fully informed, but, but people have a really good bullshit detector and you know, when, you know, someone's trying to sell you something and when someone's truly being authentic and that authenticity really, really shines through. And when you're authentic in your love of what you do and the brand that you're writing for, you don't need to say or do anything. It just comes out. And, and that is what I think creates amazing experiences. And that I, you know, because that's been such a focus of ours, I was thinking about it this morning. I'm like, man, we have not only long lasting employees. I was thinking about this because someone on Twitter asked me about hiring employees. I'm like, man, we don't hire very often because the people we hire stick around for a long time. Um, and I'm, but it also is true of our, of our clients, like thinking through our client base, I'm like, man, we've had, we've had clients with us for like five, six years. Um, and, and sure. Part of it is the, the expertise and the product we bring there. But I, I truly believe that a big part of that is the experience that we've created because of that authenticity and this the authentic love for what we do that comes across. 
you know, and compare that to another agency or situation where this is just a job for people. And you can tell, right? Like I'm reading a script, I'm going through the motions of what I'm supposed to do. You don't have to do anything different. People can sense that, you know, this is just a job. They're reading a script to me versus, man, this is something Jim is super passionate about and he loves getting up and doing every day. And I want to be a part of that. It, it, it creates something quite amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it makes, you know, from, from the other side of things, it makes engaging with clients that much easier mm-hmm. because they start to feed off of the, the, the passion, the excitement and you know, what, what we're trying to do. Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, and, and again, I, I, Evan, so Evan LaPointe and I have been talking quite a bit about the psychology of kind of getting to where you get uh, your career from an expertise perspective. And one of the things he's challenged me on is being more comfortable with talking about what we do that's good versus what others do that, that isn't. And I've always shied away from that because I, I'm, I'm very nervous of the spotlight. I'm very nervous of, again, coming off as like conceited or arrogant. Um, but he's really pushed me to think through it. It's like, look, you guys have put in a tremendous amount of work to build something amazing. Not only does it deserve to be talked about your prospects and customers deserve to hear it. And if they don't hear it from you, you're doing, doing them a disservice. You know, if you don't tell them this is why we're better and then they go and choose something that's worse for them, you've done them a disservice. You've led them down a a path, you know, is going to end poorly for them. So that's on you. So, you know, that's one of the things that I'm trying to be more comfortable talking about and doing is saying, yeah, I do think this model is better in the past. You know, again, going back to the, the wolf thing, becoming the wolf, this is part of it. In the past, I would say, yeah, you know, there's lots of really great companies out there and they all do really good work. And, you know, so whatever. And I, and I was like, wait, wait a minute. No, there, there's lots of companies out there with really talented people in it, but their management and the way they do things is completely screwed up and we do it better. <laughs> and, and if you're looking to have an amazing experience, if you're looking to create a lifetime connection with, with a company that can create amazing value for you and change the way you think about your job and about analytics, I don't know where else you're going to go. We're, we're the company that can do that and, you know, need to be more comfortable saying that because I believe it. We believe it, you know? So I think this gives us a good segue into to another question I thought of to ask you today. Um, and I, we, we've, we, we've mentioned bits and pieces of this before. So I, I definitely don't want to go down some of those paths, but what, um, what concerns you most right now? with the current state of, of analytics. Uh, and we've talked about sales. We've talked about the high pressure sales tactics recently, you know, definitely over the last couple of months, yeah. the, 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 the doom and gloom. If you don't do this now and buy into our entire stack, you're going to lose half the data that you have today. Um, I don't want to go down that path, but what else do you see? And maybe, maybe this just continues this conversation around experiences is what, 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 what do you see as troubling? The biggest thing I see as troubling is that, um, and I'll just talk about digital analytics, the space that we play in, um, is for most cases not integrated into the business. And to still a Matt Gershoff line, in most companies, analytics is theater. 
It's checking off a box. It's saying we do analytics, but it's not truly informing how the business works. That is massively concerning to me. And if you don't believe me that that is true, go and look at your network and see how many people were were let go during COVID from analytics teams. How many full analytics teams were completely dried up? If analytics was critical, a critical component to driving the business, that never would have happened. Not until the very last end that the ship sinks under the water. But they were the first to go. And so if you don't believe me, just go look in your network. Because I guarantee you, you will find talented people at big companies that were let go, downsized, rift, what's the term where they're put on like, like ice and furloughed, furloughed. Go look. I guarantee you, you will find a lot of those people in your network where we're in those first waves of getting ripped from their companies. And that's all you need to know about where analytics sits within these organizations. So, yeah, there's a lot of operational pieces. There's a lot of pieces around um, privacy and, you know, cookie third party and first party cookies and ITP and all this stuff is are super important and things that are going to change the landscape that we work in. For sure. But all of those things in my mind are minor compared to the fact that most digital analytics organizations are not engaged enough with the business to inform the business um, in ways that they are critical, um, in which they are, um, what does Seth Godin call them, in which they are linchpins. Until the day that we become linchpins in organizations, I will always hold up that that is my greatest fear and worry for for the industry that we work in. So then I will go further. Um, So going down another layer, ITP, ATT, privacy, Google Sandbox, Waldens, those are my next area of concern. Um, And not to the point of the sky is falling, chicken little, that we're seeing from media agencies, Um, I understand why they're panicking because this squarely strikes at the heart of what they do. Um, It's a part of what digital analytics is. Um, It's just a part of it and it will change the landscape, but I've been in this, this game long enough to remember this has happened a lot. Um, And I remember going back to when Google said, we're no longer going to share keywords with analytics. Do you remember this? Like, it's had to be over a decade ago, right? Where where before we had all these great paid and natural search reports and we could break it out and we could see what people were searching for. And Google just one day said, nope, we're not sharing that. And I remember when that announcement came out, there was mass hysteria and panic. Oh, yeah. People people were running around with their heads cut off. Oh, it was crazy. And people were predicting the end of web analytics and it's over and we're not going to be able to do our jobs anymore and it's done. And huh, like 14, 15 years later, we're still here. Uh, I see that as one of these moments. I mean, I definitely think that the privacy regulations and things we're seeing from Apple and Google are going to have a bigger impact than Google hiding search terms from, from analytics. Um, but I don't think it's the end of analytics. It's definitely going to pivot. I definitely think it's going to change how we view things. I think we're going to see new technologies. Hopefully the big players in the space um, are ahead of this and come up with ways that we can continue to drive value, but it will change things. And um, we definitely need to be on the forefront of that. So as a business owner focused on analytics, that's my biggest concern is 
how do we avoid staying in the weeds of what we do today, knowing that two years from now, what we do today is probably going to be fairly irrelevant because two years from now, it's going to look pretty different. And if we just stay in the weeds, we're going to miss it and we're going to be a laggard. And that is no place anybody wants to be. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's a concern of mine. And if I could just go on a slight tangent um, and talk go for about, it because I do have something. Uh, okay. Go ahead. Go, go, on, go, go ahead. If I can just go on a slight tangent um, and just talk a little bit about how our business model supports that, I, I think it's it's worth noting um, because one of the driving factors in us rejecting the billable hour model is just this use case. In that, I saw early on in my career that it was impossible to stay up with the demand of what was changing in the analytics industry. It was impossible if you had time to do it, but as a consultant, we had no time. Why? Because we had to bill 37.5 hours every week. And those unbilled hours were probably unbilled hours because we had to sit in meetings and do timesheets. So when was I going to have time to do industry research, to hack on new technologies? We didn't. And so I'm like, we're in trouble because we're, we look good today but we can spend no time investing in tomorrow and it's going to catch up to us. And so that was a huge reason for us rejecting the billable hour model is I wanted to incent our team to be able to continue their education, to continue learning because we're only good as, as we are today about what's happening today. We can't rest on our laurels. We can't say, you know, this is how we did things 10 years ago. It's not good enough. We have to stay up with what is happening. And the only way to do that is to create time for your team to be able to do that exploration, to continue their education. And if you're asking them to bill 38 hours a week of client time, they're not going to spend those not two hours of non-client time doing research for you. I guarantee it. So that was a huge decision for us saying we're not going to do billable hours because if we're going to stay around and have longevity, we need to be able to have time where we're learning and, and keeping up with the current trends. Mm-hmm. And I think my my point kind of it, 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 it's a bit more focused, but it ties into into that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's it's around vanity metrics. So we've talked a lot before about data hoarders. I mean, that's one of my soapboxes right now of you know people trying to collect everything and collecting everything three different ways, and you know you you get lost in constantly maintaining that. The other thing is, is vanity metrics, uh, people being, and I think you or somebody else tweeted this out. So I grabbed this note too, for, for, from last night for today's conversation, the, the obsession with vanity metrics. Um, and I, I, so I, I that being a distraction. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, yeah, I had a conversation last night about no one viewing my video content on social media and vanity metrics. So it may have been that. So so that's where it came from. Yeah. But no, what it is, is, you know, I, I think about it and I've been trying to coach a couple clients through it is really identifying what is critical to the business to understand. What is something that's really, really nice to have and adds value to it. And then what is just extra? Because if you're not careful, all three of those get weighed the same. And yeah. one of two things happens. Either you've focus and spend time on the wrong thing and don't get the the key thing done or you spend equal amount of time on all of them and stuff gets done half-assed yeah yeah and i see so then you have all of that stuff wired up 
but there's no quality behind it. There's no integrity behind it. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a problem. It's a very real problem for lots of, of different companies. And for me, I see two driving factors in, in, in this being an issue. Number one, and you mentioned vanity metrics is, and, and maybe I won't go as far as calling them vanity metrics, but metrics that are prioritized because it supports a certain group's ability to be measured on their success. And, and maybe that's a convoluted way of saying that, um, that groups tend to prioritize data collection that puts them in the best light. So what you're saying is, is people manipulate data when there's financial incentive. 100% of the time. <laughs> I am aghast. I am absolutely aghast. That that yeah, I mean, it's, the sarcasm is, is coming through thick. What, what's the quote? I'm, I'm picking up. Oh, a it's just dripping, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, we see it. We see it all the time. Where the 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 good of the business, and I, I, you know, I was t- again, I was talking to a client on Monday or Tuesday, and I was saying, you know, I'm really scratching my head here, watching you guys fight internally about this and how we measure success here, because ultimately, if the business as a whole does good, don't you all do good? And the fight was just that, like, well, you guys can't do this because that hurts our metric over here. I'm like, yeah, but if you guys do that and it hurts their metric, but it raises the to- the overall metric of the business, who cares? Like, doesn't the, the rising tide lift all your boats? Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a very real problem with politics in corporations where we're pitting departments against departments with these metrics. And it comes out in analytics where the strongest department that has their will instruments these metrics that put them in the best light um, and ultimately could be undermining the health of the business as a whole. So it's like, yeah, you're making yourself look good, but the business is suffering and that's not a sustainable strategy. Um, So that's problematic. And the second thing that I would say is part of the problem is this concept of, well, we need to collect everything because we don't know what we don't know. And while in theory, I understand that in practice, I've never seen it work. Because these companies are saying, well, we have to capture all of this stuff because one day we may need it. I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh. I understand that, but you can't even deal with what you have now. You know, you're telling me you need all this data because you may use it one day. You have less data now and you can't use it because it's so bloated and overwhelming. So what are we talking about here? Like collecting it so you feel comfortable, but knowing that when the day comes that you're going to need it, you don't have the ability to do anything with it. Like, let's be realistic and honest with ourselves. Like, are you taking the pill because it makes you feel good in the short term? Because in the long term, it's not fixing anything. It's actually making it much, much worse. But it's a, it's a very, um, it's a very common philosophy that these companies have of like, well, we, we might need it one day, so we'll just collect it. I'm like, okay, again, this is more short-term thinking. You're, you're making yourself feel good today, but this is not a sustainable strategy. Yeah. Like at this point, like when I start hearing things like that or, <clears throat> you know, like the, the focus, like I've, I've gotten a couple questions about like, you know, we have a couple clients that have like a predefined search. Mm-hmm. So when you start typing, you get the search suggestion with the predefined, yeah. predefined search keywords. Can we track the number of keystrokes and the exact words that people had entered before they actually clicked a, 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 a keyword? And I'm like, well, the, 
the the short answer is yes, but the full answer is is you really shouldn't because why? What what are you actually going to get out of there besides? I would just like to see what people typed in before they actually typed a keyword. Yeah, and I think that's something that I would challenge like every implementer, analytics, visionary, whatever role you're in your company to challenge more often. Um, and and I'm not saying that in a way as again as a flex or a way to kind of show your power, but more as a smart strategic decision in like how are we actually going to to use our data? Like force the people that are asking for it to articulate how are we going to use it i think that's a very very fair and valid question but this is also i think one of the detriments of the implementer as implementers and i grew up as an implementer we love to build and implement we love to like collect stuff and so oftentimes someone says so i'd like to capture okay yeah yeah i got it so here's the design we're going to do and this is going to be really fun and i so we're going to put this in here and like that tends to be kind of our first response because we love to build things to collect things. And that's what we do. We need to take a step back and like, you know, take our, our excitement down a little bit and say, well, wait a minute. Okay. How are you going to use that? And, and some, and, and, and some people may have really, really strong valid use cases in that case, absolutely collect it, you know, but we need mm-hmm. to have that discussion of, well, how, how are we going to use this? What, what business decisions are we going to make knowing that that data? Um, and if if we find out X or Y, what changes to the site or the customer experience are we going to make from that? If we can't articulate that, we shouldn't be collecting it. And again, I know I'm going to get pushback from people saying, yeah, but it could be valuable and you may want to look at it one day. You can say that until you're blue in the face. I guarantee you, you're not going to do it. You're just not mm-hmm. like I hear people say it all the time. I never see them actually saying, "Oh, glad we did that." Um, you know, they may say, "I'm glad we collected that," but dang, our implementation is so broken we can't even use it now. So that sucks. Yep, so, and that's exactly where I was going to go. Is uh, you know, I thought of this as the one thing, like probably one of the key things I've learned in my time in the analytics space is to do exactly that challenge why we're doing something because i mm-hmm. was definitely that person early on really after i got through like cutting my teeth on this and, and really learning it is as i was the person like yeah yeah this is really interesting right not asking the value of the data that we're collecting it's this was really really cool and it'd be a really right. cool thing to build let's build it and then over the years as those implementations start to age and you realize people aren't using half of those cool things you built you spend a lot of time doing that, but then you've created a maintenance nightmare for yourself. Yeah. Um, and it's, 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 if anybody were to ask me like, what's the one skill I've learned is to push back on that and yeah. challenge people on why they really want to collect something. And it, well, it's important is not a valid answer. Why yeah. is it important? What, what is it actually going to do for the business? Yeah. I, and I think it's a very, very healthy discussion to have. And I think, that organizations that have those type of back and forth are back and forths are much healthier than most other organizations. Uh, but this has been a problem since I've been in the space. I, I remember early in my career, it was heat maps and it was click map and crazy egg. And, you know, I'm like, this is, we need this. This is the most important thing we're ever going to do. I'm like, yeah, it looks really pretty. And, and I'm going to, I'll tell you the truth. I put it on my own site and it's really, really interesting but what am I going to do with it? 
there are a, there are absolutely valid things and valuable things you can do with it. Most people have not gone that far in their thinking. It's like, I don't know. We just want to see where people are clicking, where they're scrolling. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I can see how that can be valuable, but how are we going to use it? And how comfortable are we are are we in making changes to the business? You know, this I think this kind of ties up nicely back to our conversation that we started with like my fear for the the industry is that we're we're not we're not seen as linchpins. We're we're not indispensable. This is why. This is why we're we're capturing all this data but we're not tying it to and holding the business accountable for making fundamental changes in how the business operates. We're just not, if we were, we wouldn't be having that conversation. So this is much more than a sustainable analytics conversation, much more than a data hoarding conversation. It, it really comes down to, this is a conversation about talking with the business about how we're going to use this data to fundamentally change how we do business. And, and until we can get there, all of these things are going to, going to continue to be problems that, that plague us. Mm-hmm. And to put a really nice bow on it, it, it completely goes back to where we started this episode with mm-hmm. it talking about the experience, mm-hmm. um, talking about the experience. Cause like I, I, I had a, a conversation one-on-one with one of our stakeholders a couple of weeks ago. And we were involved in some technology evaluation and, you know, some of the folks on their side were very opinionated about some technology versus the other. And I said, if I'm not forcing them to not go beyond the shiny objects of that technology, if I am not forcing them to defend their position on why one is better than the other, I am not doing my job. If I'm coming in and saying, well, you like that one better. Okay. Yeah. We can help you implement that. We can help you support it. No, it's, it's defend your position. And if I'm not doing that, I am not helping you. I am not doing my job. Yep. Yeah. And, and that's a, a, I think a, um, huge differentiator, um, in, in how we work. And I think it's important to talk about that. And uh, again, are we a doer? And there's a place for that, right? There's a place for a, we need someone to come in and build X, Y, and Z based on our, our design. But one of the things that we've prided ourselves on is we're the wolf. We're the experts. We're coming in to clean up the problem. And if we're not, if we don't have the confidence to have that conversation, then we're, we're not living out our promise and um, we're, we're, we're not giving the client what they need and what they're paying for. And so that's something that we need to make sure we're talking about internally that so that we have that comfort to have that conversation because that's what they're buying, right? Like ultimately that's what, what there are, our clients are buying from us is, and, and I can't remember how I wrote it down. I wrote it down as I was thinking about the design of our new website is we don't, we don't always tell clients what they want to hear, but we always tell them what they need to hear. And so, I, I think, you know, it, it's, it's hard. It's hard to do that, but you know, the, the, the times like, I'll, I'll tell you this, like when I've had those heart to hearts where I've pushed back and, you know, I've gone in and say like, I'm not doing my job if I'm just saying yes to you. Yeah. Um, the reaction has been like a first, like a moment of shock, then like a moment of, Hmm. And then, yeah, you're right. Yeah. You know, like, you know, I, I, I need you to push back on me. Yeah. So the way that I think about it, and I think a strong visual for anyone to think about this is 
think about your circle of friends and then think about your circle of acquaintances on social media and, and think about how you manage those two groups differently. Uh, so on social media, I often think, man, I don't want to say this to this person, or I don't want to say that because it's going to make this person mad or upset. So I'm, I'm going to just err on the side of just telling people what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of that bigger acquaintance picture. But then think about your friends. I don't know about you, but I'm sure it's similar. My best friends have no hesitation in telling me what I need to hear. And they don't hesitate because they know that our relationship isn't so fragile that they have to tell me what I want to hear. Otherwise, we're not friends anymore. If if that was the case, we wouldn't be friends, right? So my best friends have mm-hmm. no problem calling me up saying, dude, you're being a jerk. Like that thing you said, you're, you were an ass. You shouldn't have done that. Like I may be upset at the time, but over, over time I'm just like, you know what? Hmm. And then to your point, you're right. (laughs) You know, like those are the conversations that, you know what? Yeah, I was a jerk and and I'm, and I'm sorry. So when you have that relationship where you have trust and you mutually respect each other and you're trying to find the best solutions for everybody involved, you can have those conversations where it's more loosely defined and a lot of our social, um, our social relationships, there isn't trust. There isn't a joint benefit that we're, we're going for. So that's why it's so easy to unfriend someone on Facebook, block someone on Twitter because they're not our real friends. You know, Mm -hmm. there's not that investment there. These people we work with are our friends. We care about them. We care about our client's success at a personal level. And that's why we can sometimes have these conversations to say, I know you don't want to hear this, but dot, dot, dot. And they, they say, hmm, yeah, you, you know what? You're right. So. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. And then we can go down the whole thing that is toxic social media another day. The poison that is social media. I'm ready media. for that one. So let's do a whole episode on that guy. Yeah, let's do it. Like, <laughs> like, I, I, I'm working on a social media purge. <laughs> Are you? Yeah. Is, uh, my wife is you know, she, she did the, you know, give up social media for Lent thing. Mm. And like, I told her the other day, I'm like, your mood has substantially improved. I'm you sad know, you she may not recognize I'm sad it. She doesn't like my Instagram photos during her purge, but I, I, I respect <laughs> it. Well, one of the things she said is, is after, you know, it's been a good detox. So she's, ta- she's thinking about like once she goes back on using um, the iOS's screen time functionality oh, yeah, yeah. and then like limiting, limiting. You know, social media apps like one hour a day. That's smart. Yeah. You know, to kind of put a governor on, you know, on, on the app usage. So she's not sitting there constantly scrolling and, you know, yeah. getting frustrated and, and whatnot. But I'm like, yeah, your mood has definitely improved since you, uh, since you've cut that out. I can attest to that. I, 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 I went off of social media for all of January. Um, and I felt amazing. <laughs> Um, there's definitely pieces I miss. And from a business perspective, it's really important that we have a presence there. So I've re-engaged, but I've re-engaged in a much more deliberate way. Um, but yeah, I mean it, and I don't, we don't need to go down this until we do an episode, but we don't realize how deep we are into that hole until you pull yourself out and say, wow, that was not healthy. And how many hours, like she's been looking at the screen time reports coming out of her phone and like the hours she would just spend scrolling through it yeah and she's like yeah like after this is over i'm not gonna 
dive right back in. I'm going to put some kind of governor on it. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah, that'll be a fun conversation. Yeah, let's do it. I'll put it on the list and we'll uh, we'll talk about how the, you know, how toxic social media is and, and how it does just that, how it cheapens relationships. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that'll be fun. Cool. All cool. right. So let's go ahead and wrap up there and uh, we'll catch everybody later. See ya. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of 33 Tangents. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast aggregator so others can find us. If you would like to reach us, you can do so by emailing podcast at 33sticks.com or on the web at 33tangents.33sticks.com. 33 Tangents is a production of 33 Sticks, an analytics boutique.